Uh, this week we've been uh, enjoying the uh, Winter Olympics. The figure skating was beautiful, the curl- curling was uh, tantalising, frustrating, but I think what uh, our family enjoyed most was the snowboarding. That those races were so exciting with their jostling for position, their dramatic falls, sometimes equally dramatic recoveries. Perhaps the story of the game so far has been the sight of um, Lindsay Jacobellis seemingly cruising to victory and then uh, crashing uh, just before the end because she showed off on the last uh, jump. I thought to myself, actually, the Olympic Games can teach us a lot about life. At least uh, the Bible thinks so. It often describes the Christian life using sporting images, in fact. Training hard, struggling in a long-distance race, wrestling, finally crossing the, the, the finishing line. Lots of images are there in Scripture. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure, though, whether the average Christian has meditated very deeply on that that aspect of the Christian life. We we tend to focus our our attention not so much on the struggle, the race, but on getting people to the uh, starting line. We think, um, so often, or seem to think, that after that it's just, just, just a simple walk in the park to get to the finishing line. Not so, says the Bible. As I replay those uh, downhill snowboarding races, I think that in many ways they stand for the lives of many Christians that I know and love. Starting out well but then getting tripped up by someone. Crashing into the side netting because we were just too overconfident. Sometimes valiantly after falling, getting up and making a really good finish or starting rather slow and actually not really being with that jostling crowd in the front until they all fall and we just sail past. And the Bible portrays the Christian life actually not as a victory lap at all, but as a hard, gruelling race. And once again, the book of Exodus shows us that so clearly. By um, Exodus chapter 15, we have had uh, uh, a lot of the story. In fact, you could almost imagine the story was at an end. At the beginning, the Egyptians were in slavery in Egypt. God showed himself to them, revealed his character to them. God confronted Pharaoh through Moses, finally defeating Pharaoh, rescuing God's people only because each family had sacrificed a lamb and smeared uh, the blood of that lamb on the doorposts. God led the people through the desert to the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea. They went through and as as Pharaoh's chariots tried to follow, the Red Sea closed and drowned them all. And in Exodus chapter 15, they sing this extraordinarily jubilant song. They are free. Such a wonderful picture of, the, uh, uh, of, of Christianity, isn't it, in a sense? God saves us by first revealing himself to us, by defeating the devil, um, by, by, um, uh, by liberating us, and setting us free, because 
of the death of Christ, our Passover lamb, who means that we will not face judgment. God brings us into his kingdom through baptism, which is just like going through the Red Sea, says the New Testament. Surely then, uh, we should be singing like Moses and uh, Miriam in Exodus chapter 15. But you see then, the story changes. From looking over the Red Sea that has engulfed their enemies, they turn round and what do they see? Desert. They have a long and difficult walk ahead of them. In one sense, the race has only just begun. The finishing line is over the horizon in the promised land. And here is what uh, uh, Christians in every age who are not ready for that race do. They grumble. Verse 23 of chapter 15. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Their complaint is against God. That becomes very, very clear. But again and again, the people don't quite have the courage or perhaps the the vision to see that they're really complaining against God. It is their leaders who get it in the neck. These immature unready, unbelieving believers grumble actually again and again and again. Sometimes saying the most ridiculous things. Did you notice in verse 2 of chapter 16? In the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Oh yes, Moses, that's credible, isn't it? He's having a nice life as a desert, uh, in the desert as, as, as a shepherd. He goes down because God has, has, has called him to, to, to go and stand up and risk his life against Pharaoh to liberate these people at great danger to himself and they say, oh, you've only done it to, to kill us all. And better things in his life to think about than going down to uh, bring trouble on his own people. He had gone there because God had called him to. He had brought them out not to live in the desert forever but to get to the promised land at great cost to himself. And yet Moses finds the people saying, you were just plotting to kill us, weren't you? And on and on they go. In chapter 17, verse 3, um, we, uh, we read they, verse 2, they quarrelled with Moses saying, give us water to drink. And Moses replies, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the, to the test? But the people were thirsty for water and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? If you aspire to Christian leadership, be ready for grumbles. Too many people, uh, uh, frankly, imagine that their Christian lives will be a combination of a nightclub, a banquet and a love affair. So when their leaders lead them out into the desert, 
when they actually have to train them to survive in arid places, when they have to warn them that the promised land is still over the horizon and meantime there is hard training to be done, there will always be those who grumble. Athletes who know what has to be done to win the race love their trainers who force them on and drive them on. But those who've got no idea hate such people. And if we are tempted to grumble, then we need to learn what the Israelites had to learn. That's what we're going to spend most of our uh, time on uh, this morning. We're going to see how God was extremely gracious to them, again and again providing for their needs. But he was also determined to teach them five vital things as they faced now a long trek in the deserts. We're going to have to just survey chapters, uh, second half of 15, 16, 17 and 18, rather briefly this morning, to get a flavour of what God was teaching these people as they turned round from their celebrations at the Red Sea and looked at the desert ahead of them. First thing that he had to uh, teach them was obedience. That's in chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Three days after they have seen perhaps the greatest deliverance in the the Old Testament, they are grumbling because the only water that they have is bitter. And Moses turns to God and receives an answer. Verse uh, 25, Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became sweet. And God then spells out a lesson for them at these bitter waters. Verse 26. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will, bring on, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. I am the Lord who heals you. The lesson at this point is very simple. If they listen to God, if they do what is right in his eyes, not in their own, if they pay attention to his commands and his decrees, then he will not judge them like the Egyptians. Now, first of all, that must mean that if they don't obey, despite the fact that they have actually been uh, liberated and passed through the Red Sea, if their lives are characterised by disobedience, then they will face judgement just like the Egyptians. We don't obey in order to be saved. That's very clear in this story. God rescued Israel before they had done anything particularly good and and took them through the Red Sea. But we do obey as saved people. No matter what our um, past experience, no matter what our 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 uh, confession of faith, no matter how good our doctrine, no matter how good we might look at a casual look. If our lives are not committed to obedience, we can claim no protection from God. 
Of course, that doesn't mean a, a single sin or even a troubling, besetting sin cuts us off from God. It is at root whether we desire to follow God, whether we are committed to confession as we were earlier and asking God to forgive us and trying again and again to obey him. That is the key issue. And if we live like that, and he can turn, then he can turn bitter waters sweet. I don't say that in any trite way. I've spoken to too many Christians who are, who are troubled, who suffer from uh, real bitter situations. To say that in a trite, simplistic way. Sometimes people have to live with the bitterness of childlessness or singleness or illness or broken relationships or personal disappointments and it is really tough. Bitter waters of Mara do come and they are not sweetened sometimes immediately. Sometimes we have to cry out to the Lord as Moses did. But here is a promise to us. He is the God who heals. He is the God who mends our hearts. He is the God who gives us something good and healthy in return for that bitter, undrinkable water. As we commit ourselves humbly to obedience as his people. If we obey him, he will heal those wounds. The second lesson is the one that gets the most attention in our, our passage and we may spend slightly more time on. We need to learn to obey if we're going to keep going, walking to the promised land. We need to learn to trust too. The people complain this time about lack of food in chapter uh, 16. Actually, specifically, lack of meat. And God, again, rather than responding in anger, responds with the most incredible grace. First he gives them a vast flock of quail in, cha in chapter 16, verse 13. Uh, that evening quail came and covered the camp. God sometimes is overwhelmingly generous to us. We want meat, he gives us meat. But his, his promise is not always to give us what we crave. His constant, enduring commitment, though, is to give us what we need. Their staple for the next 40 years, which would keep them alive, comes as well in verse 13. In the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they didn't know what it is. And Moses said to them, It's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. We call this bread manna, because actually the Hebrew um, 
word manna sounds a bit like the, the Hebrew word for what is it? This is what is it stuff on the ground. It's always God's mysterious provision that we can't quite understand. Every day, we are told, there was just enough for each person. Verse 17, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. When they measured it by the Omer, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Every day, though, they had to go out again and get some more. Verse 19, Moses said, no one is to keep any of it until morning. Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until the morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with the people. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed. When the sun grew hot, it melted away. The only exception to that rule was on the Sabbath, when they were allowed to gather twice as much, and it didn't um, uh, spoil overnight, so that they didn't have to do anything. They could rest on the Sabbath day. Predictably, the people were slow to learn that as well. I don't know whether you noticed, but some trotted out on the Sabbath day to see if they could get a little bit more. Of course, there was none there. God was teaching them to trust him. God was teaching them that every day he will give them enough. But he was teaching them as well that every day they had to come to him to seek what they needed for that day. The Sabbath stands in, in that story as, as, as a vivid picture of the fact that it's not a complete um, a relationship between their work and what they get. They're not to think actually that, they that it is just up to them to work for it. No, if God wants they can do absolutely nothing and he will provide for them on the seventh day, as he does. They are to work and receive from God what he gives them. And they are to rest when God tells them to. And he will supply their needs. so important for us to understand. To understand, first of all, that, that, that actually we're not kept and supplied if we do nothing, by and large. Only one day in seven could they do that. Every day God's people had to go out and gather. Every day we have to go back to God and pray. Every day we have to go and read our Bibles. Every day we have to ask God for grace for that day. Every day we have to seek nourishment for our souls. It will not do that we were nourished last week or last month or last year or, or uh, 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 a decade ago. It is food for the day that we need to seek. And we cannot accumulate more than food for that day. Tomorrow we will have to go back to God again. 
but he supplies. He supplies again and again and again. So that we say, well, how on earth does this happen? What is it? But yes, he does. You know, I, I, when I was a young Christian, I, I, I really, really did struggle to believe that I would uh, persevere as a Christian. I couldn't imagine it because I knew my heart, I knew my problems, I knew how weak I was. It's been 25 years now. I think I'm just starting to believe he might keep me for another 25 or however many more years there are for me. He will keep you. Perhaps you feel that uh, there is no way that you could, uh, can save yourself from uh, some major um, fall because you know how close you come to it regularly. But if you go and ask for God's grace, he'll keep you today and tomorrow and the next day. Perhaps you cannot believe that you could keep going with that burden of singleness or that burdensome marriage or that debilitating illness. But he will. He will supply your needs day by day. And what we are to do is to trust. To rest when he tells us to rest, when there is nothing more to do. To gather sustenance when he tells us to. Knowing he will give us just enough. There is not a person, you see, in the early part of their Christian life who has the resources to keep going till the end of their life. Remember it. You do not have the resources to keep going tomorrow unless you go to God tomorrow and ask for his help. We must trust him. Then, um, in uh, the first seven verses of chapter 17, another lesson has been learned. It's been, it's been floating there in the background, but it comes very much to the fore in uh, the, the, these verses in, in chapter 17, because the people start grumbling more vehemently and more in a more focused way against Moses himself. In fact, we learn they quarrel with him. They threaten him. And Moses cries out to God, verse 4, um, Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Predictably again, it's because they haven't got water in the desert. God replies, the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, Take in, in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Go, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. God wants not only to prove that uh, water can be provided, he wants to prove that he has ordained Moses as the man to provide that water. 
At root, of course, they are still questioning God, as it becomes very clear in, uh, in verse 7. But it is also vitally important they accept Moses as their leader. If God's people are going to get through the desert to the promised land, they will do it only as a community which holds together with secure leadership. Moses is not perfect any more than any, mo- any other modern day leaders are perfect. But he is the person whom God has appointed to lead and therefore he must be honoured as such. We live in a, an era today when people hold leaders in very low esteem. In Britain it's a matter of pride, I think almost, that we don't allow our leaders to get, a, get above themselves. And up to a point, I think that's a good thing. It is important that leaders are questioned and held accountable for, uh, uh, for their leadership. But it is possible to go too far. A society actually that will not honour leadership is a society which will fragment and which will decline. Nationally, but particularly in God's church. It seems to me what happens in churches these days is slightly different from what used to happen a generation ago. A generation ago, I was always hearing of uh, uprises, uh, uprisings and divisions and strife within churches. These days people don't, don't care about individual churches enough to bother with that, they just leave. There is a growing tendency, in fact, for people to wander from place to place, from church to church, as one leader after another doesn't quite measure up to what they want. And it doesn't surprise me at all. An increasing number of, uh, 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 of younger people especially wander away from church attachment altogether and then in time from anything recognisable, recognisably Christian about their lives. Because shepherdless people are easy prey. No, it is vitally important for God that he authenticates Moses as a leader. Because he knows that his people must stick together if they are to get through the promised land. And it is vitally important for your life that you are part of, all all of your life, that you are part of a community which has leaders who are worthy of respect and who are respected. Who lead. Because we need each other. We need to be bound together as a community if we are to walk that long path to the promised land. Fourth lesson, just quickly, is prayer. The story in the second half of chapter 17 is of the Amalekites. They attack the Israelites, Moses is an old man, so 
So he doesn't put a sword in his hand. He goes up onto a hill and he prays with his hands raised. Actually, we learn that he's even a bit tired to, uh, to do that. He has to have his hands supported. And, uh, but Moses' prayer wins the day. Prayer is so vitally important. It's vital for God's people as a whole. Maybe actually that is your primary role for God's people together to pray. And let me warn you, you may not get much recognition. Notice verse 13. It says, So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword there, just after it made it plain that it was only as Moses was praying that they won. But God will see. God will honour your prayers. Let me say for, for us personally as well, as individuals, if you are not praying, if prayer is not a vital part of your life, then you can have no confident expectation that you will persevere. One final lesson of these five. It is wisdom. Chapter 18. It's a fascinating story because uh, Moses had been separated actually from his wife, Zipporah, and from her father, Jethro. But they meet up again and uh, Jethro uh, observes how Moses is leading the people. Everybody is coming to him. Jethro gives him some wise uh, father-in-lawly advice. Listen to your parents-in-law, just in case you thought they had nothing to tell you. He suggests that they actually divide the people up into groups and, they, they, um, and he sets leaders over them to judge the ordinary routine cases. So that Moses can focus particularly on prayer and on teaching the people the principles by which they must, leave, uh, must, live, must live. Only bring the most difficult cases. Have them, uh, only the most difficult cases brought to you, says Jethro. Now, one of the fascinating things is that Jethro is by no means a uh, seasoned believer. He's a seasoned pagan priest, actually. But he has wisdom. Wisdom is not the sole prerogative of uh, God's people, you know. There is wisdom outside of God's church. And uh, sometimes we need to listen to some solid, worldly wisdom. That may be very important for you. Be wise about the way you lead your life. Understand what... Uh, um, the doctor says to you about your health. What wise people say about how to organise your life. But it's very important for us here as God's people. In fact, particularly this lesson is very important to us. That's why we've appointed, uh, uh, started appointing deacons. That's why we divide people up into, into house groups. Notice that, the, that uh, Moses is divided people right down to groups of ten to have leaders over them. 
That's why maybe for some of you I'm not quite as accessible personally as, uh, as, as you would like. Because frankly it just does not work as a church grows for everyone to have equally um, strong access to one leader or even directly to the elders. We need to recognise that uh, there are a variety of gifts and we will be wise to listen to Jethro and organise our church life in order that people don't become frustrated or the leaders become exhausted. So for you, will you learn these lessons of what it means how we can walk that long path through the desert to the promised land? Will you be learning obedience, trust, recognise leadership, to pray, to exercise wisdom. One of the sadder things of um, my life is to have a number of friends, certainly not by no means all my friends, but to have a number of Christian friends who are my age, who I've known for 20 years or so, who really are not much more mature than they were 20 years ago. It is really painful to hear them grumbling because I hear the echo of these Israelites and I long to see them learn. Be warned. They are tough lessons we need to learn. It is a tough walk. It is a long distance race. It is a struggle. After um, Lindsay Jacobellis, who was uh, apparently sailing to uh, victory on her snowboard, after she uh, fell, she made some pretty lame excuses about to cover up her foolish showing off. Tanya Frieden, who uh, sailed past to win, said this, You're never sure until you get to the very end, she said. This is something I've learned in races. Something I've learned in life, Tanya. 